Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash Hi, my name is Samir, and this is Viewer Experience, the mobile syrup podcast where technology meets pop culture. For the inaugural episode, today's show is focused on Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. On the show with me is Mobile Syrup's managing editor, Patrick O'Rourke. How are you, Patrick? I'm excellent, Samir. How are you today? I'm quite well. Thank you for asking. Later on in the show, we'll have Academy Award-winning animator, co-founder, and chief creative officer of Flight School Studio, Brandon Oldenburg, as well as executive creative director of Flight School Studio, Limbert Fabian. They'll talk a little bit about what they do at Flight School, as well as how virtual reality and other emerging technologies are changing the way people interact with entertainment. But first, Patrick and I are going to speak a little bit about Ready Player One and its portrayal of virtual reality. Before we get into things, here's some credits. Ready Player One was directed by Steven Spielberg, based on a novel by Ernest Klein. The film's script was written by Zach Penn and Ernest Klein. Cinematography was by Janice Kaminsky. Alan Silvestri produced the film's score, while editors Michael Kahn and Sarah Brosher helped to bring the whole thing together. The film stars Ty Sheridan as Wade Watts, a teenager who goes by the pseudonym Parzival in the virtual world The Oasis. The Oasis was designed and created by Mark Rylance's James Halliday and Simon Pegg's Ogden Morrow. It's a digital world in which anyone can live their truest lives, and whose inhabitants use pop culture icons and characters to disguise themselves in-game. Watts, along with Olivia Cook's Artemis and Lena Waithe's Etch, are on a quest to find three keys that lead to an Easter egg that will grant ownership of the Oasis to whoever finds the egg. Patrick, I want to start by asking you a simple question. Did you see Ready Player One? I did. I watched it uh, this Saturday, actually. All right. And uh, what do you think of the movie? I thought it was... We were, we were talking about this before. Um, the way that I would describe it is it was fine. I was okay with it. Um, it improves on the book in a number of ways. There were parts where the film dragged, which I, I know we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but in general, I thought it was it was okay. It was decent. So I, I guess then let's uh, let's talk about it a little bit. What did you like about it? I thought the visual effects were very very cool, especially inside the Oasis itself. It was kind of this believable virtual world. Um, so that was one of the key things that I really liked. The action sequences were cool, particularly um, the race for the, the first key. Yeah, like the actual the race. That, that was neat in, in Robocop lot. City. That was Delta yes, City. Yeah, that was very yeah. cool. There was a lot of interesting set pieces there. Um, and the other thing that I liked was that the, the references themselves weren't the core of the film. Like in Klein's book, uh, that's what the whole, the whole book is, is right? 80s reference after 80s reference after 80s reference. Um, in the movie, things were modernized a little bit. There was like that, that GoldenEye reference at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that was... Playing his odd yep, job yep, with slappers. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's cool. That, that was a good uh, sort of nostalgia hit there. Um, but that's not the core of the movie, right? They're there. They're kind of set pieces in the background. If you know the references... Um, you kind of get that nostalgia hit. If you don't, it's okay. You can still enjoy the film. So that was one of the things that um, I liked in terms of what changed from the book to the movie. Uh, And I guess the last thing that I found uh, probably the most interesting, and I didn't expect this, was I thought the commentary surrounding um, 
turning the Oasis into a giant microtransaction was very, it wasn't like, it wasn't super smart, but it was way better than I expected. And there's a lot of subtlety to it. Um, and I also like the stacks. I thought the stacks were cool. They're, they're exactly what I expected they were um, from from reading the book. Uh, and I wish we kind of saw more of that. But I did I did like the depiction in the film. So you brought up the microtransactions thing. It's kind of timely to have this movie come out right now where, like, you know, a, a lot of stuff's happening it, just in terms of Facebook, uh, in terms of the whole privacy uh, crisis and, like, the, the, the thing that's on a lot of people's minds. Um, so it's kind of timely. So you said, like, it was... It didn't really go that much into that. Would you have liked to see a little bit more of that? Would you like to see, like, a little bit more... Um, of discussion about you know the, the the evils of big corporations like trying to take over a public space like the internet just to sell ads and stuff. Yeah, I think that could have could have been a, a good hook to the film, right? Um, and I think I when I was telling you sort of my opinion on the the movie last night, that was something I mentioned was like, uh, what, what are they called the the service centers, the uh, um, experience centers, oh, something we, like we that. We have it written down over here. They're called. Um, uh, loyalty the loyalty centers. centers. Loyalty that's centers. The, that's the one. So in the book, because uh, I, I I like dystopian universes, uh, one of the most interesting things about Ready Player One's world is those loyalty centers, where they essentially own you. <laughs> <laughs> they take on your debt, and you have to to work it off. Um, I think the movie tried to go the route of uh, show not tell with those, but I think uh, it also kind of missed. Like it didn't explain them enough. They just kind of thrown into the film out of nowhere. I think there's a lot of opportunities for for commentary there with the loyalty centers um, that the the film didn't go into because the, the my family members that I saw it with that that went over their heads. They, they they never read the book, right? They they didn't get that at all. They were like, "Why is she locked in this room? Is this a prison?" And I'm like, "No, it's not a prison. These are um, this is a giant corporation that is essentially a government because it's so powerful. Um, but it's it's not a prison." She's here to work off her debt, so I had to explain the whole thing, and, and I don't think the film did a really good job of that. So you brought up the idea of show, not tell, um, and I know that one of the big problems that I had when I read Klein's book, um, and it's a problem that a lot of people in retrospect have with it, is the way that it presents all these references. Um, I, I think like one of the most immediate and egregious examples for me is when Wade Watts is reciting everything he knows about James Halliday, who's the guy who created the Oasis, and he goes down like this this two or three page list about like he's you know Wade knows all of the comic books that uh, Halliday liked. Wade knows all the TV shows, and he knows all of the movies and video games. It's like two chapters it's, worth yeah, of like stuff. Yeah, like so yes. much, and it's and it's weird because like it's. It, it's almost like he's gatekeeping himself. Like he's being like, yo, you, you think you think you know a lot about 80s stuff. Well, here's all this 80s stuff I know. Um, I also liked the way that Spielberg um, made it. And I, I guess Zach Penn and Ernest Klein with a script too. They made like an active choice to not hammer over the head all of the stuff that all of these people know about James Halliday and all these things that people know about like pop culture just to see it. Um, I will say though, on on the subject of gatekeeping, there's like a literal gatekeeping scene where uh, yes. yeah, where Artemis is talking to Parzival, where Olivia Cook's Artemis is talking to Parzival, being like, "What's Halliday's favorite movie? Yeah. And yeah. what's his favorite video game?" It was like it reminded me of um, like Reddit or something. Yes, like, like a very yeah. a somewhat toxic online community, one one of those like big nerd culture ones where you kind of have to know A, B, and C before anyone will respect you. That that kind of thing. Yeah. So then, I, I guess jumping off of that, do you think that not knowing what references or not even knowing what some of the characters on screen is is that gonna take away from some viewers experience i i think you would get less out of the movie for sure um 100 but i i still think 
there's an enjoyable film there, even if those references kind of go over your head. Um, cause I know a lot of my family members wouldn't, wouldn't have gotten them. And I mean, uh, like the golden eye one I mentioned, I was like, that, that's cool. It's a nice modernization of the sort of eighties nostalgia that was in the book. Um, but there were other ones too. And I think they, the last one, the, the, the adventure one, yeah, the where, Atari, where it's like you yeah, grab yeah. the invisible square and yeah, the Atari one, I think they, they spell them out to the viewer. Right. And, uh, to Spielberg's credit, I think they were spread out. There wasn't a lot of them. So it wasn't like you were getting punched in the face by nerd reference after nerd reference. They were kind of spread out. And the ones that were used were, were smart. They, they were interesting ones. Like that adventure one, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, that's clever. I, I learned something throughout that process. Um, on the subject of references also, and I, I really, I, I do want to like keep on bringing this up over and over again because of how, I guess, important references are to the book and the movie. The movie, not so much. Um, IGN over the weekend put together a list of 138 Easter eggs. You see I that? may or may not have seen this. Okay. Yes. So... Um, these are these are Easter eggs ranging from stuff that's like really clearly obvious, like you know Gundam's in the movie, Chucky's in the movie, the DeLoreans in the movie, um, Battletoads are in the movie, obviously like the Atari's in the movie. But then smaller stuff that you you actually do really have to pause the movie and just like use a microscope. So like Sokka apparently from Avatar: oh, Last really? Airbender. Yeah, yeah, really? apparently, yeah. That's cool. Um, and so like you, so obviously you saw you saw Batman and you saw Harley Quinn because Batman was drawn attention to and Harley Quinn was in the it was in the oh god the bar scene I guess yeah yeah but yep. apparently Piccolo from Dragon Ball Z is also really yeah. Yeah. yeah so like lots and lots of references let's talk a little bit then about some of the stuff that maybe we didn't like as much yeah um so uh in the book I find Artemis one of the more interesting characters I I didn't really like. Uh, Wade Watts is his real name, right? Yeah, his name's uh, uh, yeah. Parzival. And, Wade Watts. and Parzival. Yeah. I didn't really enjoy his character in the book. Also, didn't enjoy him in the film. I thought he was uh, pretty uncharismatic, not particularly interesting. Um, and in, in, in the book too, I enjoyed H. I, th- I think that's how you said it. Yeah, yeah, H. Yeah, yeah it's H. Um, uh, and and in the film, what I would have liked to see is more of Artemis and H, essentially. What what more do you think you'd have liked to see out of those two characters? Just more about the. Just, there's a lot of interesting banter between the three characters in in the novel. It's been a while since I've read it, but those were some of my favorite moments in it. Um, and I think that was one of the things that Klein was good at putting into the book. It, it seemed like organic. I know it's a book, so it's not organic, but it seemed like an organic connection kind of thing. Um, I would have liked to see more of that in the movie because um, we don't really learn much about them, right? They're kind of like window dressing to, to push the plot forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, I would have liked... And also like Wade's character too. Yeah, exactly. I, I, it would have been nice to learn more about him. He was, to me, way different than he was in the book. Um, not that the changes were really for the better, because he still wasn't interesting <laughs> to me anyways. Um, yeah, I, that's one of the things that I would have liked to see uh, way more of. Uh, I also think that the movie could have been shorter. There were parts where it dragged on, and it just felt like they were filling space. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would talked about the loyalty center stuff before. Um, but yeah, those were the main things that I think that I think could have been improved. Yeah, no, I would, uh, I definitely agree with you. I, I, I'd say characters across the board, all of them are sort of a little one note. They all kind of actually seem to me like they're the same character in a way. 
um you know like wade watts is this nerd he's he you know what uh, he's, he's sort of like a you know this this quintessential nerdy white boy who you found yeah, on reddit that's exactly what he is yeah. but then also like even even artemis who is uh who, who is like devolves into the love interest pretty much like there's that's it, all she is yeah, that's all that. she is like yeah. she starts off she starts off being this 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 epic character who's really important within the oasis like within the story itself people know her like they talk about her like she's a legend and she is a legend but then like halfway through the movie once once she and uh, uh parzival once she and wade start becoming friends i guess or rivals um, all of a sudden she's like, Wade, I know you're the only one who can find yeah. all of these keys. Yeah. I'm like, no, Artemis, like, five minutes ago, you were one of the people who was more than capable of All her agency is like gone. She just goes along with yeah, it. Yeah, she's just like, she's just reduced to, uh, again, a love interest. Which and is I mean, they handled, they handled their relationship a little bit better in the movie a little bit <laughs> but but it still wasn't it was still pretty problematic yeah it's still it's still again like she just she just falls in love with him and he just he just can't kiss her like there's just and they don't they don't really explain why it's like zero to 60 real quick the relationship it's like they don't like each other <laughs> then all of a sudden the movie's over and they're and they're like in love and live that the end of the movie too i guess that was another thing was um super cheesy the we closed the oasis on Tuesdays. And yeah, so that was so was that a reference to something? I, I don't know. I thought it was so weird. Like so, it, it was it was Tuesdays and Thursdays, right? I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays so that they could hang out on that love seat and make out. That yeah, no, the that's. Yeah. I mean, sure for Wade Watts, that's pretty great. Um, and I guess uh, Artemis too, because she she's not really a character. I just so I I, I heard that Tuesday and Thursday part. And I thought to myself, that seems that seems really, really specific. That seems like something that references something. So I was like, maybe, maybe it's a reference to like TV, and t- Tuesday and Thursdays are bad nights for primetime TV. But also, I th- then I thought the same thing. Um, and then I, I I looked into it after watching the movie, and I couldn't find anything about so, it. So it was just so. it's just a random like throw. It's a joke. It's not even a an homage or a reference. It's just a random joke. Yep. Okay, that didn't really, I didn't really uh, work for for you either, huh? No, no, not at all. Okay. Yeah. So I I think that kind of uh, echoes a lot of what I didn't like about the film. I would also say that it was it was a little long for me. 140 minutes um, seemed a little long, considering it was it was a pretty a pretty simple story. Like if you strip away all of the all of the trimmings, if you strip away all of the cool references that you see, and if you strip away like the the I, I guess overall like n- like narrative arc, it's a pretty simple hero's journey. Um, this random guy just is the chosen one apparently, and he's on a quest to save the world. What did you think of the shining portion? Oh boy. Spoilers obviously, but there's an entire section of Freddy Player One the movie that takes place in the Overlook Hotel from Stephen King's The Shining and also Kubrick's The Shining. Like it's so it's a recreation of the movie itself. I thought that was probably the weakest portion of the movie. Um, so like the whole point is that they, they're trying to figure out where the second of these three keys are and they figure out, oh, it's, it's in the shining and they go to uh, the Overlook Hotel and they go to room 237 and then there's the, there's the elevator that just like blood is everywhere. The blood elevator. Yeah, the blood elevator. Yeah. There's the creepy person in the, uh, in the bathtub and then they go through the maze and then they end up like dancing in the, uh, in, in the hall. Um, I don't think that worked. Okay, so obviously it didn't work for me, but I don't really understand why they went with The Shining of all the things they could have recreated. Um, I understand that it's an important movie. Obviously, it's an important movie. It's a fantastic movie, too. If you haven't seen it, you know, just going to pander there and say, go watch The Shining. It's great. But, like, why of all of the references they could have gone with The Shining? 
Yeah, I mean, I thought that was weird too, especially because it that wasn't in the book at all. I, I don't, don't think. remember. I, I'm sure there was a reference to The Shining, cause but the, but it wasn't this whole. Yeah, sequence, but I don't I don't right? remember it being and an it, entire sequence, and it definitely wasn't for one of the keys. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, to me, I I didn't hate it. I thought it was okay. Um, there's there's parts of it that I thought were pretty clever too. Um, but it seemed out of place. It was almost it like did. it was something that was tacked onto the movie after the fact. They're like, we need an, an 80s movie reference in here. And, and they just threw it in. Uh, another like another an 80s movie reference. 80s yes. reference cause yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say that I utterly disliked it. I'm not going to say that it was the weakest part of the movie. Cause it, it wasn't the weakest part of the movie by far. There were definitely, again, the character problems, just the, the story's pretty one note. Um, but yeah, it, it, it it's not something that I'm gonna really take home and say that's why you should watch Ready Player One. In fact, I'm not really even sure that I'd say like go out right now, buy a ticket, and go watch <laughs> Ready Player One. Wait till it hits Netflix. Wait till it hits Netflix. Exactly. Just and you know what? Actually, yeah. Wait until you get it on home media so you can actually pause the movie and be like, oh, there are the Battletoads. Oh, there's Piccolo. Yeah, during the um the race for mm-hmm. the first key, mm-hmm. like the the huge race, there was portions where i was like wait was that that character i'm not sure i yeah, wish i yeah. could pause this go back and take a look so I, d- I definitely agree with you there and even even on the subject of the references i know that uh, earlier i said that I, I enjoyed the references and i like the way that they didn't and, and you even echoed this you know they don't hit you over the head with them um i would say that probably the the weakest part of the movie are the references um and uh, homages easter easter eggs right whatever you want to call them there are i think two or three sequences that really highlight the fact that Spielberg went out of his way to speak to all of these different studios, these, all these different Hollywood studios and to get the rights for these properties. Like, so there's the car racing scene. Uh, you've got stuff like the Mach five from speed racer. You've got the Batmobile from the, uh, the Adam West Batman. You've got like some stuff in big rigs. Uh, I, I think it's called big rigs. King Kong, obviously. Oh yeah. King Kong yeah. and T-Rex from Jurassic park. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole city is the Robocop city. I think, I think it's Delta city. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, is, is it Delta city or Detroit? It's, I always, it was filmed in Detroit. I think I, uh, maybe the new one, Takes oh, okay. place in Detroit, like the remake. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. We're probably wrong. Someone will let us know. I'm sure. Oh, that's fine. That's it's okay to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so like the the big big sequence that shows you all these characters is like a battle sequence, and that's the that's the third act. And um, you've got you've got like, so many characters. You've got DC characters. You've got um, uh, the Battletoads. You've got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You've got uh, obviously you have uh, the Iron Giant, which I'm gonna cut myself off here. The inclusion of the Iron Giant has been a bit of a point of contention for some people who enjoyed the original uh, Iron Giant because it's a it's an anti-war film, it's a peace movie. The Iron Giant only really uh, you know goes to war, enters a battle like at the end to save a character. Did you think that that took away from uh, Ready Player One the inclusion of the Iron Giant? I didn't remember the original Iron Giant, so that that didn't even occur to me when I watched it. Now that you're saying that now, okay, sure that that is a little strange. I I, I was kind of wondering why they chose that there's like so many other gigantic giant robots, robots right? yeah. you could pick right there's a, a wealth of popular culture to mine in that respect so i i thought that it was kind of weird that they they picked the iron giant um like you could have had some awesome gundam or something. i mean i, did, I know there, there were like you could have another one right like sure, you could have had another one yeah. yeah um so i think there there probably could have been um uh something that maybe would have been more relatable to the film's audience and 
I guess that's kind of what that, that, that goes back to what we were saying about the Shining reference too. It's sort of like they they just threw in these characters, they threw in these references just for the sake of having them without really doing anything. Um, important or essential with them like imagine if instead of the Overlook Hotel from The Shining they had like I don't know something from Scooby-Doo right like just imagine that would it have made a, a lick of difference I don't think so probably not probably no. not like imagine imagine if instead of I don't know Planet Doom from Voltron which is where um, uh, an entire sequence is set imagine if it was um, I don't know the Doom planet from like the Doom game the Doom video game yeah like yeah. the right like or, or I guess that's is that Mars is that uh, I think it takes place on Mars, yeah. Or is it hell? I think some of the game is in hell, but some of it also takes place on Mars. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, like, just imagine imagine if it took place there. Like, it wouldn't have made any difference. Um, and same thing. Like, uh, Parzival drives a decked-out DeLorean with the lights from Knight Rider, and it's got... Oh, I didn't even catch that. I, I saw the DeLorean, but yeah. I didn't know about the lights. Oh, yeah, no. So, the DeLorean, and that's... So, the DeLorean in the book, obviously, Ernest Klein makes a huge deal out of, of how course. cool it is. Um, and like all the different, it's got like a Ghostbuster stickers on the sticker on the side, and you can see that in the movie too. But in the movie, they don't draw any attention to that. They're like, "Ooh, DeLorean, cool." Yeah. Uh, let's move on to the the action sequence. Instead of the DeLorean, like you, what if you had I don't know, like the, the invisible jet from Wonder Woman? Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't I, have made a difference. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have changed anything. But to an extent, I think that's also um, a strength, right? Because someone who maybe isn't familiar with all of those references can still enjoy the movie and get something out of it. Um, but from like what you're saying from the other perspective, I think they they could have been a little smarter with the references. They could have in yeah. terms of integrating them into the plot and, and choosing specific things that maybe would resonate with the movie's core audience a little more. Um, but I mean, they're trying to, it's a big budget Hollywood movie. They're trying to, uh, appeal to the lowest common denominator. Yeah, I guess right? so. Yeah. So. Yeah. I will say one of the things that I found rather interesting is so you you bring up the idea that it's a big budget Hollywood blockbuster. Did you find that having a director like Spielberg, a director who is a master of the craft, who knows how to direct an incredible movie and even how to direct a blockbuster because of course, you know, he created he created the blockbuster. Do you think that his inclusion on this film made it a little bit more honest, a little bit more earnest or do you think that it was it was just like, oh, here's a reference 2018? <sighs> I mean, I I think it was kind of here's a reference 2018. <laughs> Uh, his films always like even though they're big budget uh, blockbusters they always kind of have like some kind of overarching message that they're trying to send right um, at least that's how I, I, I view his his movies um, and I mean there was kind of that little bit in there with the uh, loyalty centers and, and the whole uh, internet turning into a giant microtransaction in this case the Oasis um, and I would have liked to see more of that I think I, I would have expected that kind of overarching message um especially given how current it is i know the news cycle with all this facebook stuff there's no way anyone could have known that that was going to happen at this very time um but i I wanted to see more of that i I kind of i think i expected that uh to be a little more prominent in a spielberg movie and that that wasn't really the case it was there but it was like much of the references in the film just window dressing okay and then i guess um the central message that's delivered at the end which is Go outside, go outside. Meet with people. <laughs> Reality is great because it's real. Did yes. You, did that? Did that really? Did that affect you? Did uh, Did no. you get all teary eyed at the end when you? <laughs> <laughs> only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Oh, only on that, that's that's when I get Thursdays. that's when I get teary eyed. I mean, you, you saw that too at the beginning in the stacks, right? Where people are literally living their lives inside virtual reality, and I guess that's commentary on how we 
walk around looking at our phones all the time. It's not just kids or millennials. Like, everybody is on their phone at all times. So, I mean, that sort of Spielberg-esque morality message was in there. Um, But, I mean, for me, that was only present at the beginning of the movie when we were seeing all the people doing stuff in the stacks. Um, And then at the end of the movie, it kind of disappeared for the majority of it. Is there anything else you want to add about things you liked, things you didn't like? I mean, one of the things that I was surprised about, uh, and this is always the case of when you read a book, you have like these images of what stuff looks like, right? That's what I thought the Oasis looked like, but it's not what I thought people's characters within the Oasis looked like. We actually, we should probably, let's uh, let's address that really quickly. The, the anime characters. Yeah, they were a little more, um, I would describe them as cartoony than I thought. My vision of the Oasis was this like, it's fantastical, but it's also hyper-realistic, right? Um, because it's it's so real that it makes you forget about actual reality, right? The, the whole term, virtual reality. Um, and to me, it looked like they were pulled straight out of an anime with very, um, very specific features and stuff like that. They were much more cartoony than, than I had expected. And I know there were more realistic characters within the Oasis too, but the, the core like team, like the, the main characters in the, in the movie, um, they all had this kind of... Uh, like you just said, this very anime-esque kind of feel to them. I will say, um, jumping off of that, I agree that the that the uh, like the main characters, so like Parzival, um, Artemis, and Etch, um, they like they they definitely looked a little like anime and cartoony. But I was impressed with how the film's animators were able to combine all of these different characters from all these different That's properties true. Yep. and make them feel like they fit in like. In, in, in the in the ending battle sequence, like you see Tracer from Overwatch and you see the Battletoads again. So many properties. Just so many properties. Doing stuff. And like it kind of, it worked. Like Tracer looked like she could exist in this world alongside something like the Gundam, alongside like Chucky. Um, and, and like the Arkham, uh, the yeah, the Arkham video games Batman. And there's like the Master Chief walking around in the middle of the battle good. too. How cool is that? That was super cool. Yeah. Um, awesome. So it was like as silly as some of the references were. Like I still got that nostalgia hit. Like oh look, it's the Master Chief. This is so cool. He's fighting with Tracer. <laughs> so it's it's hard not to to put that sort of um, uh, fanboy. This is something that I really liked as a kid, or that I still really like today. And here it is with this other property that I also really like. You, you kind of if those are things that you're into, you, it's impossible to put that aside when you're watching this movie. Yeah, I I agree with you entirely. I agree with you entirely because I was I watched the movie. And at first I was like, oh, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be the objective film critic yeah, here, yeah. and I'm going to be really hoity-toity and snooty. But then all of a sudden I saw all of my favorite characters yeah. joining up and I was really getting it's into super it. Cool. It's super cool. Super cool to see. Um, when he, when, when Wade is, or like Parzival, whatever, whatever his name whatever is, his name is um, whoever he is, when he's rallying everyone to join him for the battle and he's like, you got to join us and it's going to be really important. I was like, man, <laughs> I'm really getting into this. This is, I have goosebumps. My goodness. I, yes, I will join you. You're going to put on your HCC vibe yeah. set and, and go join him in, in the Oasis. Great reference to the, great reference to the HTC vibe. Um, how about we get on to our next segment that I like to call, um, that's not how any of this works. <laughs> So, Patrick, Ready Player One, the book and the movie, relies on a lot of very specific technology to advance the story, hook the audience, and move things forward. Obviously, we've got the Oasis, we've got video games, movies and TV shows from the 80s, 90s, and I guess now uh, mid to late early aughts, 
uh, the internet, that goes without saying. But then we've also got the central element that ties this whole world together, and that's virtual reality, and that's sort of what I was hoping we could talk about. I was wondering uh, if you'd be able to bring us a little bit up to speed with where virtual reality is right now. Uh, for our listeners who might not be following tech trends as closely as we do here at Mobile Syrup. Sure. Um, so the way sort of the industry sits right now is there's two main high-end virtual real- reality headsets. So there's the HTC Vive and there's the Oculus uh, Rift, which also has its own uh, touch controllers. Um, and both headsets are capable of uh, what what's known as room scale, where when you move around in this virtual virtual reality space, there's cameras. Um, yeah, it's cameras in both cases that actually track what you're doing. Um, and it's not your physical body that's being tracked like it is in um, Ready Player One. It's just uh, the controllers and the headset itself. Um, and the experiences are still, even a couple years in at this point, um, they're very much just demos. They're, they're tech demos. There's a few, I guess, larger, broad. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash post. There are games out there mostly for the PlayStation VR, which I guess you could also look at as the sort of third competitor in the virtual reality space, despite not being quite as powerful as uh, the other two. Um, There's also lower-end headsets that are powered by a smartphone, so something like the Daydream View from Google. Or uh, what is Samsung's offering called The Samsung Galaxy Gear The Galaxy Gear, yes, the Galaxy Gear VR. Uh, The same thing. It's powered by a smartphone. Um, So those are sort of the directions that VR is going. We're starting to see more standalone headsets, which I think is a key thing for VR to take off and become more popular because it makes it more accessible. Currently, if you have a high-end headset, you also need a high-end PC to power it, right? So that makes VR incredibly inaccessible. You first of first of all have to drop like a grand on a headset for the most part, and then you also have to have a computer that costs somewhere between a thousand five hundred and two thousand dollars in order to make these experiences actually run. Um, and nothing that I've experienced in VR. Um, it's been a little bit. I, I've kind of fallen off following VR extremely closely uh, for reasons we'll talk about in a bit. But uh, it's not where the Oasis is, like not even close, right? So then uh, how close are we to living in the Oasis? How close are we? I want to be able to put on a headset Uh. and become Batman. Can I do that (laughs) right now? You can put on a headset and you can become Batman, but you're not going to be convinced that you're actually Batman. Um, So one of the things for me that I think is a big issue with VR is, um, I guess, just the simple fact that you can see the pixels when you're wearing the headsets, right? It's something that I've been calling screen door. It's like a screen door effect. Because the display is so close to your face, you see every little individual pixel and it kind of detracts from the immersion. Um, Of course, if you're playing a really good game or a really good experience, you do kind of forget about it, right? Also, especially if there's uh, room scale involved too, where you're moving around in the physical world, interacting with, with digital objects. Um, and HTC has a new headset coming out soon called the Pro that has a much higher resolution than the first Vive. And it's 
probably the first time that this kind of screen door effect um, is significantly less noticeable, at least in the headsets that I've tried. Um, and it was impressive. It, it looked good. Uh, I tried like this weird training demo thing at Mobile World Congress. wasn't exactly the best game to test it out with, but even through that very rudimentary experience, I I was able to see that like this this isn't the HTC Vive 2, but this is a step forward towards where high-end VR needs to go to, um, I guess, get somewhere kind of like the Oasis. But the big issue with VR is just how expensive it is. It's not it's not easy to get. It's it's pricey. It's hard to set up. It's not intuitive, and that's not what the VR look like in the world of Ready Player One. Like even um, people living in poverty had access to virtual reality headsets. It was like it was their smartphone to an extent, right? Yeah. There was low. I mean, they, had, they had smartphones in the movie too. They did, yes. Um, but they also had access to like really high end VR. Yeah. So there was there's crazy high end VR with like haptic suits and and like treadmills and stuff like that. And then there was like slap on a headset and hang out in your trailer and 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 have the exact same experience, but not uh, with the same level of immersion. And uh, circling back a little bit to Ready Player One, interestingly enough, everyone's got a really great wireless connection. Like, no matter where you are. It, did you... So, I was going to ask you about this. At the beginning of the movie, there was, like... So, they they didn't really go into the details of, like, how the world got to this place. But there was um, something... The bandwidth wars. They mentioned at the they very beginning the of the movie. Bandwidth wars. And I was yes. like, I want a spinoff film about the bandwidth wars. That's what I would like to how watch. How crazy was that? Like, I, I... And the weird thing is that... As a person um, who works at Mobile Syrup, as a person who follows these tech trends, like I said earlier, like I completely understood what they may have referenced I did, with the bandwidth wars. Yeah. Like obviously, we we are not currently fighting any quote unquote real bandwidth wars, but like the idea that people would actually fight one another for access to faster internet speeds, to faster wireless speeds, I completely get that. It's like a commodity. I'm assuming in this world, it's like a commodity. A commodity as value is like oil or yeah. water or something, right? That like that. I mean, right? that makes sense. That, yep. that, that makes perfect sense because like even even now we see it now. I mean, we're yes, we're all paying a lot of money for our data plans. In Canada, but then you've got places like Japan and South Korea where you you can pay significantly less for service that is exponentially better. I I I would whole. I'm not okay. Obviously, don't start a war over bandwidth, please, <laughs> listeners. Please don't do that. But like, yeah. So I caught that reference. I caught that reference, and thank you for bringing it up. So tying into something like the access to wireless infrastructure, the access to quick speeds, all references and jokes about the Oasis aside. Um, do you think that right now, H- uh, HTC, my goodness, virtual reality is in a position where the video games industry sort of was in the 80s, where, like, you've got, obviously you've got games like Super Mario Brothers, and this is for, like, the NES, where clearly it's not a hyper-realistic, photorealistic character, but the players are more than comfortable with, with playing these games because it's, like, good enough and it's going to get better. Is Do you think that's where virtual reality is right now? I, I never thought about it like that. I mean, I, I guess it is to an extent. For for me, the biggest barrier with virtual reality right now is just cost, right? Simply, it costs so much money to get a high-end headset that offers a, a great experience. Um, and I mean, stuff like the Daydream View uh, helps democratize the technology, but the experience you're getting from using the Daydream View and the HTC Vive is totally different. Like having actual room-scale access um, is a complete game-changer. There's a much... Uh, more significant level of immersion. Uh, Microsoft's doing some cool stuff with uh, mixed reality headsets that it's building with partners like Lenovo, where you don't need even cameras. It's able to detect a room and map it. Um, but those are more kind of AR headsets. And and that was another thing I was going to mention is like these 
the headsets in Ready Player One seemed to be actually like a mix between AR and VR because people were still aware of what was going on around them in some cases, which is a little strange for me because that's not what I imagined in in the book. Yeah, I I mean, I I don't think it's quite there and it's not going to be for a number of years. And uh, for our viewers at home who maybe don't know the difference between uh, AR, VR, and mixed reality. So um, what what is the difference, I guess, between AR, augmented reality, and VR, virtual reality? So to, to my understanding, and I know a lot of people have different um, sort of definitions of this, virtual reality is when you are purely in a virtual space. There's There's no real world objects around you. All you're viewing is a display that shows you a virtual world. Um, augmented reality is uh, a little more, um, I guess, mixed in, in, in what it could be. Uh, one example is uh, a smartphone uh, and a smartphone app that maybe like Ikea or something like that. You can put virtual furniture in your uh, apartment to see if it fits. Um, that's an example of AR. Um, but then there's also headsets where like I, I, I tried Microsoft's HoloLens headset and was actually very impressed with it. I played this like Conquer uh, experience. Conquer is a, an old rare property. Video um, game reference. And this like video game, yeah, video game reference. And this little squirrel was like jumping around all over the place uh, in the real world. Like it had mapped the table, and the squirrel's climbing up the table. So I would say that AR is a mix between the virtual and the real world, whereas VR is simply just the virtual world. And then Microsoft has kind of coined this term mixed reality, um, where it's a it, it's kind of a um, a joining of the bo- of of both uh, technologies. And I think that's really what we were seeing some of the time in Ready Player One, but not all of the time, because sometimes it looked like just purely VR. Immediately, I want to ask a question like, which one is better, VR or AR? But I understand, just just listening to your descriptions of the two, that they're they're not really the same thing. They're almost forks of the same thing. Yes. So something like AR Core and AR Kit, which I'd very much like it if you could explain that too. What is AR Core sure. and AR Kit? So AR Kit is Apple's development framework for developers to make creating uh, augmented reality apps easier for supported iOS devices. And uh, AR Core is Google's version of that as well. Um, and they're compatible with very specific phones. Um, I think in Google's case, it's only the Pixel devices and the S8 and S9 and maybe an Asus smartphone in there. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but that's the general gist of what they are. As a user, you're not going to know what AR Kit or AR Core is. You're just going to download this app that utilizes the framework, and then you're going to see crazy graphical things um, when you're using the apps. Where do you think the interaction between VR and AR is is at right now? So AR is the buzzword right now, right? Um, and it, it goes back to what I was talking about before with sort of the democratization of this technology. Almost everybody has a smartphone in their pocket of some sort, whether it's an iPhone, whether it's a high-end device, whether it's um, just a generic Android device. And I know I mentioned before that not... Not every smartphone is compatible with both of these platforms. I think that's something that's going to change in the coming years. But AR really just has the potential to reach a much wider audience, right? Um, You have this phone in your pocket already that's capable of uh, running these augmented reality apps and these augmented reality experiences. Like Pokemon Go is is an AR app, right? That's probably the most prominent popular culture example of something that utilizes AR um, and now in, in its case, it only uses, it utilizes AR kit with specific iPhone models that uh, the creators of the app were able to create, uh, to develop the AR experience without the help of, 
uh, AR Kit or AR Core's development framework. It makes sense for developers to make apps for those platforms because so many people already own them, right? So that it's a much wider audience. So immediately, um, like you said, you don't have to worry about the $1,000 or you know, sub-$1,000 headset. You don't have to worry about the multi-thousand dollar computer. Yeah, and I mean, if you're, if you're making an app for a high-end VR headset right now, like I haven't talked to any uh, VR developers in, in a few months, and I, I probably should reach out and see what's going on at this point. But uh, it's probably hard to, to push a profit, right? Uh, not very many people own the headsets. Uh, I'm sure VR development isn't cheap. Um, so it's kind of a difficult business model, whereas you can release a cool AR app for iOS and have access to millions of potential users, right? Even if it's a free-to-play app, you're going to have microtransactions and all the fun stuff that are often in mobile apps. There's just more opportunity for developers to make money. Um, there's a business model, and I, I don't know if there really is for VR. It's always pie in the sky. It will get there eventually, um, and it might, still might. I just think that AR is going to get there sooner. All right. And that actually segues almost perfectly into our final segment uh, that I like to call Flying the Virtual Skies with Flight School Studio. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I spoke with Brandon Oldenburg and Limbert Fabian separately. So listen on for a condensed version of those two interviews. My name is Limbert Fabian, and I am the Executive Creative Director here at Flight School. Brandon Oldenburg, Chief Creative Officer for Flight School Studios. So Flight School is a studio that is telling stories in emerging media, leveraging new technologies. And that could be, you know, we, we call it, Brandon and I call it all VRs, uh, but uh, mixed reality, virtual reality, augmented reality, anything that sort of, uh, that, that lives beyond your traditional 2D screen. Um, so starting there, but then, but not ending there. So the idea is that we, we want to be able to sort of branch out in all those directions. We basically tell stories. We're a storytelling company. How do we tell the stories? Well, we tell the stories with emerging technology. So we're really agnostic to the media. So whether it's a book, a movie, a show, a game, whether it's virtual, augmented, or just traditional, any kind of medium that has yet to even be invented, uh, it's at our disposal. We want to do what's best for the story. We want to, we want, we want to tell stories that like everybody where they want, they want, you want an emotional engagement, a reaction from an audience that, um, from the audience that is, that that's genuine and, and, and real. And, um, it isn't, you know, we're not trying to manipulate any sort of specific sort of feeling, but the idea that you, you felt something and you connected with the, the ideas or the, or the, or the characters that we created, you go, Oh, wow. I didn't. Th-. So, so that the, the reason that is because we want, we want the technology to sort of fade away. A little bit when we're talking about VR specifically, you know, you go through all of this, uh, this the rigmarole of getting a you know a headset on and putting on headphones and turning on the computer and running the app and getting it also you know which is great it's, you know even that in itself is a little bit of theater, um, but all of that should melt away if our characters are true and genuine and you can connect with them emotionally and you can walk away having a, a, a human experience from them or a human reaction to them. Uh, that that's that's our goal. Um, you know, we you know we we have a lot of ideas that are steeped in things that we loved growing up. You know, from video games to uh, to films that we we've been, we really really do enjoy, um, and and finding how that's informed our way of looking at the world. So we want to sort of you know uh, do that with our stories to kind of find a way to connect with people on on the way that that those those popular projects uh, those films worked with us um, and and those experiences worked with us. Well, I mean, it's funny, you know, last year we tackled something that no one had ever 
done before, which was to use translucent television sets paired with air haptics, which required cannons, air cannons, so that you would feel haptic feedback on your hands as you interacted with the content on giant life-size glass screens that you could see through. Uh, it was for the U.S. Open, and it was the the concept of it was rooted in the theme for that year, which was called Feel the Game. Now, even if it were, is a game that we're making, we still are thinking about the narrative experience for the user, how they um, feel and what they see as they approach the experience and what they do during it, of course, and also how how the uh, spectators and the users feel when they leave the experience. We, we want to think through the full experience. We feel like the story can start from the moment you buy a ticket or purchase a physical object or when you see something from a distance. Your story begins with these small little breadcrumbs, if you will. And our role is to play that white rabbit that leads you down the rabbit hole. One of the things that we, 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 we talk about a lot is we want to make sure that our experiences are, they feel intuitive and they feel easy to pick up. Um, it, it's the, it's that, that sort of web experience. If you've got to click too many times to get to the thing that you're looking for, you're going to lose that person. So we find ways to sort of every step of the way um, engage you in a way that feels natural and, 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 and like you've made that decision. If, if our story is allowing to have, to, to have, let you have decision-making in the process and sort of contribute to the story, then it should be very simple. Um, if it's meant to be more of a passive experience and, and you're supposed to sort of sit back and observe, then we want to make sure that that is also pleasant and, 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 and meaningful and, and there for a reason. Um, you know, one of the things we talk about is, you know, specific with VR is that this isn't a film in any way. So it's, a, it's, you know, so what is it? You know, we try to figure out what it is and why you're there in the first place. Um, you know, with AR and, and, and things where we're adding things to our real world around us, um, we got to figure out what's enticing about that and what's, what's curious about that and how are we going to be able to tell a story around um, that platform again? Because these aren't films, you know, these are experiences and, um, that that sort of drives where we where we head, and then you know, of course, we have ideas for traditional media. Right? We have you know our two D screens and our and 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 things that we want to live beyond um, a virtual experience. VR is theater inside of a donut, meaning that you're in the center. You're that you're that hole, if you will, and everything around you is stimulating. Where in AR, it's theater in the round, where you are a able to walk 360 around the objects that are amongst you. And so when you, when you tell a story, you have to think about it completely inverted for the two mediums. It's exciting nonetheless for both of them to think that we are able to enhance and alter and almost, if you will, create a hallucination with AR and mixed reality for people to be able to bring stories to their real world that they're existing in now where in virtual, where we're just completely transporting you, which either you're doing it with a headset in your living room or at home or in your office, or you're going in and having an experiential experience that doesn't necessarily require technology. It just requires the ability to transform the environment that you're immersed in. And that's the thing that I really, um, that I think we've all been sort of seeing bubbling up to the surface over the last five years. And then it really kind of came to a head this year at South by through Westworld, through the activations for 
multiple brands and, and intellectual properties, whether it was Ready Player One or even Google Home, they were all creating immersive spaces for people. And it really was the conversation on the street and everywhere you went on the panels. We, we actually even, Flight School hosted a panel this year at South By, which was about making um, these virtual worlds tangible and real which on our panel, we had Neal Wolf, we had Airlift, and we had Ted Shilowitz, the chief futurist of Paramount. The conversations all led us to this new exciting place, which we, we see on the horizon, which is the, the, our, our world, our audience, the people, everybody in the field of entertainment are wanting things that, that can be more real and tangible, that can remove some of the the sort of hurdles that technology presents. And we see technology every day removing these hurdles too, but we see this convergence happening soon in the near future where we're able to go wherever it is we wanna go and we're able to do whatever it is we wanna do, which is awesome, but we want to experience it sort of, we wanna be guided by the hand of a visionary. We wanna be taken to that that world, um, that that visionary is, is, is envisioning. It's like going into a curated space, if you will, but a curated funhouse designed by a specific designer. Well, you know, again, you know, we're all artists here, so a big part of it is, you know, we, we love graphic novels and um, other ways to introduce characters that way. So, you know, doing something that's a 2D experience is a big part of it. Going to see a sh uh, like, like writing a film or writing a, or, or a series that is traditionally sort of consumed. So anything from Netflix to, you know, Hulu, how, any of the TV experiences we have. But what's interesting about those, uh, those avenues is that can we use those as a sort of place to introduce our character that then you can pick up with in a different medium. So when we have a character on a, on a show, can that character or that situation or that world blossom in VR? And you step into that, in, in that into that universe um, you, more uniquely, more intently. So yeah, I, we keep thinking about how Star Wars films existed and exist, and uh, we easily can jump into a game or a novel or a VR experience that's in that universe, and we know exactly where we are and what we need to do, where we what, what part of universe we're we're, we're in. So um, we hope to tell stories like that. But this requires more writing. Um. <laughs> You know, the the larger the stems, um, the more branches you put on your tree, it just require more thought and, and more complexity the further it branches out, which, um, you know, the, I believe there was over 500 pages of script that was written for this two-hour experience for Westworld. And it really is a, not about necessarily storytelling as much as it's story experiencing and story living. So... We're excited to um, be able to bring our voice to the table in this new exciting sort of story living uh, genre that's, a, that's emerging. This this idea that you you examine, you see yourself. I think that the idea that you can be yourself and have some sort of spontaneous input into that narrative. I think it's it's different. When you're reading a book, of course, you're 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 envisioning the world that are in, that that are sort of given to you in those words. And when you're watching a film, you're you know you're being transported and you're sort of you're you're being fed this wonderful story. Um, what's interesting about the R's is that okay, I, I'm, the same thing is happening, but I'm also I'm also here. I'm literally here. And you know when you mentioned before about 
Um, you know, what's really great about uh, Ernest Klein's book, um, Ready Player One, is this idea that could we exist in a place where, where we are in, like, on the same level as all the characters that we're interacting with, we're reading about or seeing on the screen. I mean, to be able to step into, you know, Back to the Future and walk through that narrative, that's that's a very interesting concept. And, you know, will we get there? Is there a way of telling stories that way? Potentially. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of David Fincher and I love, you know, the game. You know, think about the game. And that's that, that film is a VR experience. Um, it's all theater, right? It's all being put on. And what is so being able to sort of, you know, Break apart what's real and what's not real is interesting, and then you know there's a lot of uh, a lot of room to play in that in that space. Giving your audience more content to consume is an exciting thing to be able to do because the more I love a certain kind of genre or a certain kind of world, I'm rewarded for my curiosity. So if if, if uh, let's say you're into Harry Potter, then I would imagine Pottermore is very exciting because. You, you're given more opportunities to live in this universe and to extend it. And the more thought and care by the visionaries that work on these stories that go into these external um, stems off of the narrative are, are exciting because you're rewarding your fan base for their curiosity. And when you think about stories, at least we, the way we do, we can't help ourselves and think about the larger story universe. It's not, necessarily in the hands of just Disney anymore. I think we can even create microscopic story universes um, as a small outfit like we are at flight school. We can still think about how we, we can reward our audiences for their curiosity if they read um, what we're putting out to the world um, just in written form and then compare it to what we put out to the world in the form of comics and then, then compare it to what we put out in the form of uh, a game that we release. All three of them individually can be satisfying narrative, but combined together makes for a more filling meal. And we want to always do that. We always want to do what's best for the story and the medium that serves the story best. We don't want to necessarily repeat the same story in all these separate mediums, which, which often was the case these past few years, past few decades when it came to, um, merchandising uh, movies. You would just buy the comic and it'd be the same story in the comic book as it was in the movie. Or you download the game and the game is just showing you all the same characters that you saw in the film. It's like that, that isn't satisfying to your audience. We got to tell other side splintered off narratives when we think about this, these other mediums. A lot of us, when we first think about it is we, we go in thinking like, it should be a linear experience. Um, when we think of video games, for example, we think of the rich narratives that are uh, presented to us in in, in console games. Um, it's you know you are participating via a character on screen, so your avatar is doing something for you, or you're controlling that avatar in that world. So that's a very controlled environment, um, and you can tell great stories that way. I think one of the things for us is that we want to make sure that we can we go okay, we have this idea um, based on this tool that's in front of us. You know, in Manifest 99 specifically, we were looking for, for a reason for uh, the, the, the use of the camera or the, the use of the, the, the user in that experience. You know, what can we do that will make it meaningful and, and, and purposeful? So for us, it's trying to find ways to um, design around the, 
the available technology or wherever that wherever VR currently stands and and go okay this is this isn't a linear story specifically but we know that there's an end to this we have there's an outcome we, we want for this um, can we create a can, can we create a sandbox for for people to sort of like get there um, so it's a little bit game a little bit you know universe uh, world building and then um, giving you some some nudges to sort of get you into the right direction um, which is you know we're borrowing from 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 gameplay. We're all anxiously looking forward to looking to seeing Ready Player One. I personally am curious to see what will happen to the conversation about VR as a medium after that film, um, just because Spielberg such has such a, has such reach. But um, you know, I think it's it's just the beginning of a lot of a lot of things, and um, it's good to have that as record of what we could potentially end up doing to ourselves. And that's it for this week's episode of Viewer Experience. Patrick, where can our listeners find you? You can find me on Mobile Syrup. Um, my, my lovely stories about the Nintendo Switch will be on there as always. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at, at Patrick underscore O'Rourke. You can find me uh, also at Mobile Syrup, um, where I'll be writing just about everything and anything that Patrick assigns me. Government policy, usually. Oh, that's me. I'm all about, I'm all about that <laughs> privacy policy, all about that wireless policy. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter, um, at Samir Chabra 94 You can find Mobile Syrup at, at Mobile Syrup on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for tuning in.